The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in August 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome Michelle Park. Hi, Michelle. How are you? Hello. <laughs> Thrilled to be here, actually. Let me just, before we get started, review a few of your credits, and there they are many. Currently, <laughs> you've just returned onto the Broadway stage in Hairspray as Velma Von Tussle. You're a Tony Award winner as Best Featured Actress in a Play for Hollywood Arms. You've been in Chicago, Susical, Cabaret, for which you won Drama Desk and Outer Critics Circle nominations, Triumph of Love, Crazy for You, a Drama Desk nomination for that, Mail, Off-Broadway, After the Fair, Hello Again, Merrily We Roll Along, John and Jen, The Paris Letter, a Drama Desk nomination there, Dark at the Top of the Stairs, a slew of regional performances, film, television, you've done it all. So yeah. welcome. I sound old by that list, don't I? <laughs> and you're still a kid. <laughs> <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> That's where radio comes in handy, doesn't it? Well, you are Velma Von Tussel at the moment, who is Amber Von Tussel's mother yes. in Hairspray, and she is yes. the uh, kind of uh, self-centered and... Uh, maniacal uh, woman who's trying to get her daughter to win the, the dance contest. And you've been doing that since, I guess, the middle of August. How does it feel doing that that kind of evil role, kind of bitchy role? I tell you, it's a blast, quite Is frankly. It? My son saw it. My son's seven years old, and he and my husband came my first night, and he came backstage afterward, and he said, Mommy, you were evil yet amusing. <laughs> I thought it was sort of a perfect description of who she is. You know, I think that's the hard thing about parts like that. You don't want people to hate you. You want people to love to hate you. You know what I mean by that? So I think the the more that she enjoys herself, and I think I think she does. She's quite well. She isn't hilarious. quite as evil as Cruella Deville or some of those. No, other. no, no. Cruella, I don't think enjoys herself as much <laughs> as Velma. But how does how does Michelle enjoy herself as Velma? Well, I've only been doing it a week. I just uh -huh. finished my first week on Sunday, uh -huh. so I had maybe three or four shows of um, abject terror and just sort of blank looks on my face. Am I saying the right lines? Why am I saying these lines? Who am I? Then I had a couple of shows where I started to get really confident, like you know where you are, and then you forget things because <laughs> you're enjoying it a little too much. So by the end of the week, I was actually having a blast. But it has to be tough going into a show that's already been running for quite a few years, and you're the new kid on the block, so to speak. The rest of the cast has been doing it, and here you are trying to not only remember your lines, hit yeah. your marks, but also put some character into it. You know what's hard about it? It's like a moving locomotive. They've already had their intense rehearsal process, and the show's up to speed, obviously. And it works, and that show especially, works at a fevered pitch. Really works best, actually, mm -hmm. at a fevered pitch. So, you know, the goal is to not be running behind it. The goal is to do your work in a studio so that you can at least step onto the train as it's going. Well, what was the process for you going into the show? How much rehearsal did you have? How much did you get to work with the cast? And how much of it was just one day they said, you know, give you a couple of days and put you in? I think the the, the, the various process for various different shows will be different. However, mine for this one, um, because I, I have gone into one other show in my life and, and the rehearsal process was, was different. No, actually, two, actually. But this one, I had two weeks of rehearsal. And I was pretty much by myself in a studio with the stage manager who was, you know, extraordinary and the two dance captains who were exquisite. 
these young kids who just knew everything. And they put several people into the show up to this point. So, And they'd also worked with the original creative team. So they knew not just about stand here, say it this way. And, and I will say much to their credit, all of their credit, it was never, you have to put your arm on this note. And sometimes that happens. You know, when you replace someone, they want you to do exactly what that person did. And I'm so grateful that all of them let me have a lot of freedom. Yes, so-and-so does it like this, but you can do, let's try, let's play, let's play. And ultimately, I think that's the best way to go for anybody who comes into a show. That keeps a show fresh. Because if I do something different, then, you know, it forces everybody around me on stage to then respond and act accordingly. Do you have in some ways more freedom when you go in like that in terms of the character and the marks are defined and then you just can work within it as opposed to when you've got a director and a choreographer standing over you for four weeks as you're crafting a character? Uh, actually, I, I think no. I prefer the uh, original process. Only because, Is that what you mean? Well, not is that what you prefer, but just... Do you get to work in a different way? It is absolutely different. It is absolutely different. It is a different set of muscles altogether. The structure's already there. It's not like they were going to rewrite the play for me or I feel like I need to do it like that. You know what I mean? It's not going to work that way. Here's what it is. And my job is to figure out within the parameters that have already been set, how do I hit these marks? How do I get to that place, you know? And then how for how do I, you know, load it up emotionally beforehand so I can hit that place? So in some ways it's easier in a way. Some ways it, it is some ways it's easier. And had you seen the show, had you seen the show without even thinking about being in it and then did you go back and see the show at some point, you know, when they said, "Would you like to go into this role?" Yes. I saw it originally with that original amazing company years ago, five years ago, I guess. And then um, I saw it again when they asked if I um, wanted to do it. Is Do you see the show differently from inside it in terms of the way it works as opposed to what you saw as really an audience member? Yes, absolutely. You can't be as objective and you start to panic a little bit more. Oh my gosh, how does she do that? Holy cow. Wow. I wonder how that's going to go. <laughs> you find yourself, you know, I, I specifically watched Isabel Keating. Lovely, lovely, wonderful. She was fantastic in that part. And uh, so I, you know, I would specifically watch her to think, oh, wow, I see. Now, you mentioned a moment ago that you were rehearsing in a rehearsal hall with uh, the stage manager and a couple other people. Do you get a chance before appearing before an audience to do it on the stage, to do it with a cast, or is it the first time you do it in front of an audience? I had a week in a studio. Then I went back to a studio on a Tuesday and a Wednesday, say. Then on a Thursday... No, actually, that's not true. We got on stage, actually, on Tuesday, but, but with nobody else but me and the stage manager and a couple of actors. Then maybe Thursday, they had what was called sort of an understudy rehearsal. They brought all these understudies in, which was very gracious of them. So I got a chance to say it with different people, because that's the hard thing. When you're rehearsing the show with one person who keeps jumping to different parts... Mm-hmm. I sometimes forget, oh, you're, you're somebody different now. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and, and on that day, I was graced with Jack O'Brien came in. and The director. Yes. And uh, Mark Shaman and, and Scott Whitman, they were there for that day, mm-hmm. which was amazing. And Matt Liner, who was the – Liner? No. 
Matt Lenz. Lenz, that's it. This is so sorry, Matt. Um, the associate director, uh, who who was so he was amazing in, in the whole process. So they were all supportive. And then on Friday they have what's called a put in. I'm the only one. They bring the entire company in. I'm on the stage. I get to now use the set, really, for the most part. There this is like things. Friday afternoon or something? Friday afternoon before these kids have to come back and do another show. So I get to jump through it in my clothes and in my hair and all of that. W- with an orchestra? Or just no a, orchestra. Just a piano? Sometimes they will do that. I think they felt that... Um, because I'm so old that I'd been no, around no, it because now. you're so experienced. <laughs> Please. That's right. Um, that they that I could do it without, so I didn't have any sound or um, uh, or or I did get that's right. I did get the set. So there were a couple of times there were some parts of the set that I had never worked with before. So I was able to say, "Ah, time out, time out. Can we go back? Because I need to do that again just for me." Because the next time I will get to be on the stage with everyone and lights now and everything else, you know, I won't get stopped. It's, it's in front of the audience and the show's not going to stop. It's no, going to keep going. Right. There are a lot of people, you know, expecting. That's right. There are a lot of people, you know, who have expectations that I won't actually stop. <laughs> so that was the goal. So at this point, do you feel you're now settling in a week in or do you think do you think you have a, a, a ways to go before you're you're fully comfortable? Um. I, I think of it as I think of most everything I've ever done as a work in progress, really. I um, I don't think I w- it ever should settle or um, become rote or I kind of know, have goals and I kind of know what the structure is, but the idea is to really sort of live and breathe every day in the midst of that structure. So it'll have different heights and... I will say and react differently because of, you know, Ashley, my daughter, who says something different. And so I think basically I'm saying the right things and I'm in the right space. But I think within those parameters, it'll be quite different. From and now you mentioned that in that that real put in rehearsal, you did have Jack O'Brien and Scott and Mark there as well as, as <coughs> Matt, the, the Matt associate Lenz. director. Um were there lots of notes, or do you think that at some point they're going to come back and and give you a few more thoughts? Oh, uh, without a doubt. <laughs> and you know what? I'm an actor who loves notes. I love them. It gives me something very specific to work on. I like to have something to focus on. Uh, otherwise, you can get out there and sort of, especially in a part in a play like this, you can just start to have such a good time and, you know, it can get ahead of itself and away from itself. And you can forget that not only is this show really fun and this character is really fun, but this play is really about something very important. This play really has something very important to say. And in a way, even though I provide a function in the play, which to sort of be the, you know, antagonist, really, I was... A part of society at that time in the 60s that, you know, lived in fear, fear of change. We knew what worked. We knew what what it was. And that was good. Therefore, good. We were afraid of the change. And any time if I venture too far from that uh, in a real way, um, the play w- won't have the payoff that it should have, I think. 
for our audience, we, we hear actors such as yourself say, the director gave me notes or the composer gave me notes. What, what, what are the notes? Now, they, these, are, these are comments that they make about your performance, are they? Are they minutia? Are they broad stroke notes? It can be everything from, I need you to be further stage right for that because you're going to be out of your light. It can be that specific. So technical. It can be that. Yeah. And it can also be, you know, Jack O'Brien, you know, dropped a pearl of wisdom, you know. Don't forget that she is afraid of losing her job. Don't forget that underneath the, the seeming, you know, confident woman who barks at everybody, that underneath it, she really has no idea how she's gotten this far. And that, that's a pearl. You know, that's a little, you know, so you get, and, and a note like that, you know, you, he was talking about a specific moment, but I can filter that through almost every scene I'm in in some way, shape, or form. You know, as a parent, you know, not mm-hmm. doesn't have a lot of confidence as a studio executive. How did she end up with this job as a, you know, a woman and all of it? So mm-hmm. they they range. They can be very specific, too. Your hand's not on your hip there. It should be, or, you mm-hmm. know. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we've been talking about all of your experience, so let's move now from Hairspray, your newest experience, and jump back and even talk how how you first got into performing. <clears throat> In reading a bit, you grew up outside of Pittsburgh. Uh, yes. Sounds like a uh, relatively Farm. small town. Very, very. And... That early on, uh, musical comedy didn't seem to be in the cards for you. Was that was that the case? I think largely because of where I grew up. You know, when you grow up in a really small town, you know, singing and dancing, making a living, doing plays on Broadway doesn't isn't really within the realm of possibility. It's not something you grow up thinking. You grow up thinking, well, I'll go to college and I'll you know, study to become, I don't know, a teacher or my brother's a lawyer. And, you know, you, I don't, I don't know that performing, although I say that and there are a million people that come from out of, outside of that Pittsburgh area, there was, there seemed to be something in the water. It's a very creative community, but it was a small town. So how did you come to it? I loved, loved, loved doing it. I, I studied with an amazing dance teacher all my life, and I'm not a great dancer, but and I ended up singing with her, and I took piano lessons. I was quite musical, and I I loved doing it. So extracurricularly, I did it all through high school, and then I went to a small liberal arts school. I didn't go to performing arts school, where I continued to pursue it. But at the end of the second year, which I think is quite common, they ask you. What is it that you want to be for the rest of your life? You have to declare your major. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was, a, I was, how old are you, 20? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. I thought I was going to be an anthropologist. Really? <laughs> Those were the courses that I enjoyed the most. I was fasc- I'm fascinated by human behavior. So it's not, not quite that far. Not a bad preparation for acting. No. It's not. Psychologically, you know, all, what, what drives people to do what they do. It's always something to fall back on when if you don't work out in acting. Don't think I haven't <laughs> thought of it a few times. Um, yeah. If it was my dad, really. My dad. It was a gift. My dad said, well, what do you love to do more than anything in the entire world? Because that's what you should do. You should. Your career should be your passion. It was a gift. He was a dentist. So he kind of pushed you in that direction. Yeah, and kind, I said, "Well, I like to be on stage more than anything else." It never, you know. I thought, really, Dad? <laughs> he said, "Well, then, no. That's what you should do." So I, I transferred out of that school. I went to a more competitive school. Uh-huh. 
And before we totally leave your childhood, I read somewhere that when you were a child, you were kind of clumsy. You kept falling down every couple of steps. Yes, upsteps. You would fall upward, not downward. Yes, never down. Thank (laughs) heavens. My my face would probably be all scraped up by now. And that that your mother suggested you take dancing lessons, ballet lessons. And my dad fought her every step of the way. Really? My mother was like, we need to get this kid in some dance lessons to give her some coordination. I think because my legs were long and my feet were big, I was gangly. I mean, I was like, a, like a, you know, the ugly duckling or that the, those little fawns, you know, whose legs don't quite work. And I was quite athletic. I, I was probably more of an athlete than I was a dancer. Uh, so that's how it all started. So really, it was. So now you took mother. Dad's advice at the end of your sophomore year. He said. I did. Do what you really want to do. So what what did you do? And then where did you get your first job professionally? I I auditioned at a few schools. I thought, well, I love to sing and I like to dance and I like to act. So let's let's pursue a musical theater idea. Uh, And I I ended up getting accepted at the University of Cincinnati. And they have a college conservatory of music there. They still do. Uh, So so I, I went there. But coming out of there, you didn't go to New York to perform in musical comedy. You weren't a, a gypsy for years. You you went. This, quite frankly, Howard, I'm just not that bright. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, I. You know, I. When I came out of that school, I had auditioned for a job in Florida to do a musical theater review at Disney at, at a hotel in the Disney World Complex. The uh, Contemporary Hotel. The Contemporary Hotel, mm-hmm. which I think is still there. Like the monorail runs through yeah, it's it. It's probably yep. not right? all that contemporary anymore. Hardly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they had a Broadway review. And, and at that time in 1985, you know, they paid you $25,000 a year, which was a lot of money. And I had school loans and everything else. And I thought insurance. So I went there. Plus, there was a boy involved. <laughs> he was there. Uh-huh. We were we dated in school, and so so we both ended up down there. And and he went to L.A., and so I went to L.A. because the woman who directed the show in Florida ran a company in L.A., and she said, if you come to L.A., I'll give you the same kinds of work. At that time, you could really you could make a nice little like side living in these convention sort of shows. Where they would hire directors to, to industrials, put it, industrials like really that. is what yeah. they were, and and it was for Disney. We did I did a lot of them for Disney, or she would get hired by large corporations, and we would put these shows together. And sometimes you traveled, and but I, you know, I was able to sort of scrap a living together till I could get it under control. Huh. But you spent six years in LA, and you did some television and film work while you were out there as well, not just industrial shows. I did mostly TV, and I did some I, I did some theater while I was out there too. This is, then when did you come to New York and do? I ironically kept yeah. getting cast in things out there that kept bringing me to New York, which oh. I think eventually was a sign. <laughs> you know, I did a I did a musical at um. I did actually. Do you want to hear something interesting? I did a musical. Uh, it was the West Coast premiere of A My Name Is Alice at the Old Globe in the eighties, late eighties. I want to say. 87, maybe, with Susie Mosier, who is in the Broadway production of Hairspray right now, who I've run into a couple of years, every couple of years, but was thrilled. Had no idea she was in the show. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant comedian. Oh, my God, she's hilarious. What an amazing actress. Anyway, so I did a production of um, Mail, actually, at the Pasadena Playhouse in the 80s, somewhere around that time. 
that came to New York. We went to the Kennedy Center mm-hmm. for for our little tryout, and then we were in New York. Played in New York in 1988, according to the notes. I'm is that at. right? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. You, listen, I'll trust your notes before I trust <laughs> my brain. Well, tell us about Mail because that's a show. It it did not have a long run, but it was both written by and starred Michael Rupert. Yeah, Michael Rupert and Jerry Jerry Colker wasn't actually in it, but the two of them uh, wrote the play. They were, and this followed when they had done Three Guys Naked from the Waist right. Down. That's right. So this was their this was the follow play. up to that. So, but but tell us a little about Emmanuel I love that and little your show. Broadway debut. Yeah. Nobody knows anything about the show because we didn't never got to record it, and and that's that's a shame because a it had a great little score, it had a nice following, but it, sometimes I think because I've been in shows now two or three times that started in Los Angeles and come to L.A., or to New York, excuse me, sometimes there's there's some kind of strike against you. You somehow have to work a little bit harder, I, and I'm not sure why. I, I, I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I don't, b- both shows that I'm thinking of didn't profess to be anything more than they really were, which was really fun and really clever and, and quite original. Um, and they, we both shows seemed to climb uphill for some reason. We could never kind of get people behind mm. us. But then you were in a show that was very definitely recorded. In fact, we play it on this channel, and the show itself ran for about four years. The original cast of Crazy for You in That's 1992. Right. How did that experience come about for you? Well, uh, origi- uh, ironically, I finished Mail in New York uh-huh. uh, and moved back to LA. Uh-huh. And then there were auditions for Crazy for You while I lived in California. And Aud- auditions I, out there or back here? Uh, I think I auditioned in L.A. the first time, uh-huh. and then they they said, "We want to call you back. Will you fly to L.A. or fly to New York?" I'm on my own nickel, and I thought, "Yeah, sure." And in those days, you know, you went in for days of auditions. It was so fun, and everybody was in a room, and you would dance all day one day, and then you would sing, you know, and then they would pair you up, and you would read with different people, and I was auditioning for various parts, and then I come back to L.A., and I get cast in that show, but not in the part that I originally ended up doing. I got cast as um, as a dancer, as one of the pink girls, they called them, and uh, I don't know why. I would never sort of advise people to do what I did. I don't know why I did it, but I knew that I uh, I was married at that time, and I knew I didn't really want to move my life out there f- to not have a bigger um, stake in the in a part in a play, and uh, and so I passed. I don't know what made me pass. So you're offered your second Broadway show. And I passed. I know. And a show that I loved, and I loved the people. I don't know what, I don't know why, really. I don't know why I did, but I did. I passed. Had you been offered anything other than a dancer, you probably would have accepted it. Well, listen what happened. Several months or a few months go by. I get another call that says, we want to see you again. Will you fly yourself back to New York? Because the girl that they had hired to play Irene Roth was doing a show, at least from what I've gathered, on the road and was not able to get out of her contract. So she was, in essence, not available. And they said, would you come back? We want to see you for this part because I didn't really audition for that part at all. And I said, yeah, sure. And so I flew myself back and then got that part almost that day. And, and I know, what- so it was fortuitous. And there was obviously, you know, there were some things in the cards there that were not quite in my control, but uh, but I'm grateful, grateful, grateful. And, and what was the part of Irene Roth? Who was who was she in the show? She was sort of the bitch in the show. <laughs> there seems to be a pattern. I play those quite a bit. No, um, 
I think of those parts as the fun parts. Quite fun, and she had a, you know, was quite wealthy. So I had the most exquisite clothes. William Ivy Long designed clothes that uh, you can't believe. And there was um, the producers, Roger Horshaw, just Elizabeth Williams, were so generous. And that pl- that musical was just joy, start to finish, start to finish. And you got a, a good Gershwin song to sing in the show. Yes, that that I think had not been well, had never been in another musical. It had been sort of recorded, but but never in another show. So I was lucky to. It was a trunk song they called it. You had a long run in Crazy for You. You you stuck with that mm. for a while, but then <laughs> you you left that and went off Broadway. I did. Musical. I did. Hello Again, which is one of those shows that is much spoken of, but many did not get a chance to see. Can you can you talk about Hello wow, Again? Wow, I that was a blessed. I've been lucky in my career, I should say. I've been really, really blessed in my career to work with just amazing artist after amazing artist, and um, to be thrown in a room with actors that I held in such high esteem. You know, Donna Murphy and. And, um, Carly Carmelo and Malcolm Gates. Judy Blazer, Malcolm, my husband, yeah. my now husband, John Dawson. And, you know, Michael John Lacusa, who wrote the score, and uh, Graziella Danielle, oh, who I would, you know, jump through hoops to work with again. Uh, it was blessed. So uh, it was an interesting choice. I made a choice to leave a big Broadway sh- musical to go to Lincoln Center and do this play. And not and, and in the Mitzi Newhouse, the small house yeah. at Lincoln Center. So suddenly you've gone <clears> from <throat> the Schubert Theater on Broadway to a 300-seat 300 uh, 300-seat house yeah. at Lincoln Center. But the structure of that show was interesting in that it's based on the Schnitzler Laurent. Mm-hmm. And it's a series of scenes of couples, and the couples mm-hmm. trade off. So in doing that show, was it was it in some way like doing musical one acts? Because in in e- you only got to do certain scenes, and in each of them, you were just really primarily with one other actor. In a in a way, uh, in a way, yes. But even though it his musical jump time periods, you did feel that you had the continuity from you played one character, and you did have continuity to the next part of it. Um, in everybody else's sort of scenes, you were basically ensemble. Hmm. So it was the most overrated ensemble in the history of off-Broadway. I mean, and we, everybody was so supportive and fun, and we had such a good time. And John Cameron Mitchell, too, in that play. And then did you go directly from that to the Merrily We Roll Along revival? Was yes. That pretty- Ironically, I'd done one of my major scenes with Malcolm Getz. And then we go to we go even to make less money over at in an even smaller, <laughs> in a smaller space, <laughs> and to work with Malcolm Getz again. And that, so we had a joke there was for a while. I thought I'm going to refuse to do a show unless I can do it with Malcolm Getz. <laughs> but what you were doing with Merrily We Roll Along, a show again often discussed, although it is often produced in. How do you make it work that it's a show that that has been revised, it's been approached, and in the version that that you did, mm-hmm. um, was that still one that was being tweaked, or were you working with one of the scripts that had been that had been finalized elsewhere? From my memory, and um, it's not the greatest, so I, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn. 
they had done uh, a production of this in Washington. Am I right? At Arena Stage. That's right. Where they had made more significant changes and 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 uh, written more material per se for the character that I played, which was Gussie. And then they'd also done it in London, right? So I think by the time we got it, I know Steve was around. Stephen Sondheim, I say, uh, was around a lot, uh, a, a lot, a lot. But we but we weren't so much. And George Firth too, actually. But we weren't. Uh, making a lot of book changes from my memory they they were just sort of helping us sort of with structure and and with the arc of it because as you say it's a delicate piece because it it tells the story backward so it it's a difficult story to tell in that way because you start when these people are at their least idealistic they're older and um and some of the characters are um a bit more jaded and and you go back in time until they you know are idealistic kids on the roof you know dreaming about their futures and that's a hard thing to do because you can somewhat alienate an audience at the beginning of that play and that's the struggle i think of that piece and in performing that piece because you are as you say you start from the most jaded going to the most idealistic you are playing a character backwards is that a different challenge do you just play the scene as it's given you do have to pl- you you do play the scene as given you will however you know when you're charting sort of the course of it i found it helpful to go back to the beginning and sometimes tell the story in forward motion and then that was my own process you know out of the room and if you listen to that score he did and and the orchestrations that that um Jonathan Tunick did that were also just genius. You listen to at the the beginning of the show, which is at the end of the story, it's full and it's loaded and it's sharper sounding and it's more complicated and more dissonant. And as they unpeel the onion, so to speak, you get back to the first time they sing some of those melodies that we hear over and over. It's simple and they're pure and these it's uh, it, so what they've done um, to uncomplicate it as well. And Susan Schulman did a beautiful job directing it to beautiful. Jumping back to Broadway now from the couple of off-Broadway shows, you were a part of the really landmark revival of Cabaret. Mm. And that show worked and successfully upended so many of the expectations of how we would see Cabaret breaking from from the Hal Prince production, the, the, the patterns that had been set almost 30 years before. Tell us about working on that show and in particular your character and how it how it developed man that was another blessed experience you know fred ebb was still alive and so john and fred um were there a lot sam mendes brilliant robbie marshall unbelievable so to be in that room every day and john um no patrick vecariello was the musical director. And I'm telling you, we showed up every day. We had a certain amount of scene work. Those of us in the ensemble, really. We had a certain amount of um, dance work. And then we went into band practice. And I'm not kidding you. It was like eighth grade band. I mean, we were a bunch of actors who hadn't picked up these instruments since, you know, 
had you previously played banjo and accordion? No, <laughs> no. But I had I the at the audition they said do you play an instrument. I said yeah, I play piano. They said well when you come back, play us a little piece. So I worked up a little you know Bach two part invention. And uh, I came in, and at the audition, you know, I was so nervous to play the piano, and there's John Kander, and uh, and Sam Mendes said, you know, do you play the accordion, love? I was like, no, I don't. He said, well, but I said, I'll learn. I'll learn how to play it. Like a moron. <laughs> because it was a really difficult instrument to learn how to play. You thought it had a keyboard. You were going to be okay. I thought, how hard could that be? Uh, it was hard. Only because it was so heavy and you know, an uncoordinated instrument, so to speak. The right hand is a keyboard. The left hand is sort of chords. And then you have to pull and push it. And, um, and, and to be really honest, the moment of focus, of most focus, that I played that instrument in the show was not about how you played. The moment was about the character you know, trying to seduce in in many ways uh, the Nazi who was across stage, uh, and 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 so it was it was about her exuberance and her, you know, passion for it. You know, it was not about um papa um papa. I was hmm. terrified though, for the first week or two before I had to play the accordion. We stood in a line against the back back against the back wall and our arms were up beside our ears. And for a, at least two weeks my hands, my arms were shaking, just shaking, thinking, Oh my God, please let this happen. Please let this happen. But when you learn to play the accordion, do you learn to really play it or just what what's required for that particular scene? Just those couple of notes or whatever it was. I play I didn't play the entire score. Most of them played the entire score. I played the on tract and the overture and I think maybe one or two other numbers and the number that I that I played in the show. So I specifically learned those. And Would it, I pick up the accordion today and just play? <laughs> you don't sit around not. the house and play it? No, but if you need a Nazi hymn played on the accordion, <laughs> I am your girl. And of course, in many Broadway shows, somebody in the orchestra pit's actually playing the instrument while the actor on stage makes the motion. Takes it. That's right. Yeah. But here you actually have to do it. Not in this one. Not in this one. We've had guests before on this program who had been part of that production, and at the risk of asking the same question... I'm curious as to your perception, especially at the very beginning of the run, of how that reinvention impacted audiences. Did you, were you just focused on your part, or did you have a sense of, of how radically people were, were responding, how differently, because of the changes from what they thought Cabaret might be? I think, collectively as a group, we... Um treated the piece as a new play for us because for us it was I know it had obviously been invented before but um, and, and incredibly well you know Hal Prince but we treated it as something new and you know you can do things on stage in 1997 that you couldn't do in 1969 so in some ways in order to shock an audience we could go a lot farther than, than they could and or did and or chose to. Uh, and I also think just because of the world climate, you know, as it was, economically, all of it, uh, the the play resonated for a lot of people in that way. Did we know it going into it? N- not at all. And i got to be honest with you, I don't think I knew it 
and I didn't, I didn't really know why until I went back to see the final production. And I never do that. I never go back and see stuff that I was in, only because you have a memory of what it was when you were in it. And part of what's so special about the memory are the people that you created it with, are the rituals that you had backstage. And when you go and see it, you ultimately go see it with other people in it. It doesn't have the same impact. So I stopped going back. And uh, my husband said, you should see this one. This one mm-hmm. you should see. And I'm so glad I did. Why? What What did you see? Well, directorially and choreographically, there were images presented in that play that I could not know because I was in. But to look at, to watch them, the impact of those images were devastating. And that's what people responded to. But I didn't know it because I was in it. We were, we just were telling the story. You were the image. We were, I guess. And what was the experience of working with John Kander and Fred Ebb? Oh, who I'd been blessed with to work with a couple of times uh, before and after, actually. Um, working on new mu- um, curtains um, was one of them. And The Skin of Our Teeth, they'd musicalized that as well. Um, but that's, you know, one of the great dream teams. I, that doesn't get any better when they come into a room and pure joy. You know, when you think, I think back on, on my career, you know, John Kander, Fred Ebb, uh, Steve Flaherty and Lynn Ahrens, Stephen Sondheim and George Firth, or Stephen Sondheim and John Wideman. I think back on these amazing teams of, of writers. It was so collaborative and passionate and there was not a lot of, um, you know, conflict or war or people arguing about notes or words or everybody. When I think of those great teams, they wanted to, the, the single vision was more important and creating that was more important than well, you have to, my word has to win. Well, when you're working with the with the songwriters themselves and you're creating the role, not going in as a replacement, but working with them during the rehearsal process, the creative process, what sort of relationship is there between you, the performer, and them, the, the songwriters? It's quite collaborative, quite frankly, mm-hmm. um, at the end, because you actually uh, have a say in how it goes. Mm-hmm. You know, we would start something, for instance, Bounce, when I worked with... Um, and that was all Steve, Stephen Sondheim. Um, I would, we he had, excuse me, taught me a song, and I would start to sing it. And in the course of the production and performance that night, I had not uh, on purpose, but changed a note or changed a rhythm and the word. And and the next day, the musical director would correct me and say, "This is the way it's written." And Stephen Sondheim was always the first person to say, "No, no, I like it better the way she did it." She told the story better. Leave it that way. Leave it that way. Because I guess you know, in some cases, this is the first time the composer is hearing it in your voice, somebody's voice performing it, as opposed to in his or her own voice when they're writing it. In, yes. In an, yeah, in an essence, yes. They're getting it out of their head. Yes. Mm-hmm. So in essence, you are lucky when you get to be the originator because in essence, they start to create it around you. And that's a, that's a gift. Well, in the case of Bounce, which I did not have the opportunity to see in its, in its different incarnations, you came into it. And was it even that your character was created partway through, you know, when you joined it? Or were you joining it and someone else had been had been playing the role? No, no. Uh, no, I created it. But, um, but that piece um, had been 
a different work. My character was a new addition to the play, so the piece had been a different piece. I think with with the focus was somewhat different. Um, and they included my character and, and changed, they shifted the focus a little bit, not to my character, but the focus of the play shifted a bit. Well, that, that was a show that was performed uh, down at the Kennedy Center in, I guess, about 2003. How did you get into that show? How did you leave New York to go to Washington to do, to do Bounce? I had done a workshop of it when they, were, when they first created that role. And then I can't remember what happened. It was set to go, and I was unavailable. I can't remember what I was doing. And so they recast it. And at the 11 o'clock hour, that person uh, fell out for some reason, uh, had a conflict, or I can't remember why. I don't remember the circumstances. So they called me. So uh, it was, it was again, really luck. <laughs> It was luck. That was luck. But you had worked with Hal Prince because Hollywood Hollywood Arms Arms. preceded Bounce. So so that connection existed. And it was because of him that I ended up doing the first workshop of it because he directed that workshop of it. Well, since we've now mentioned Hollywood Arms, we're, we're circling around. We're not going in perfect chronological order. But to appear in a play by Carol Burnett playing a character based upon her mother, correct? Mm-hmm. There must there must have been quite a responsibility and, and quite an awareness that the woman who wrote it, that you were playing part of her life. I'm wondering what the communication was between actress and author about about the the real experience versus the the stage uh the the literary experience that she put on paper. The play that she and and her daughter, Carrie Hamilton, wrote was based on her memoir, Carol's memoir, um, which was her story as she was growing up, three generations of women living in a studio apartment in Hollywood, in downtown Hollywood, and uh, and struggling and trying to make a go of it. Obviously, I um, reminded her of her mother and or had some sort of essence. I, I didn't know this till later. But I did. I did. Obviously, there was something about me that reminded me, reminded her of, of her mother. And I felt a tremendous pressure when we were in Chicago. I'd obviously read the memoir and felt a great uh, I, attention to detail. I wanted to recreate her mother as best as possible. And, and I felt uh, I was consumed with that in a way. And I went to her in a rehearsal process, in the rehearsal process, where she so graciously showed up every day. And I said, you know, I, I, what was your mother like there? What was she doing? And she took all of the pressure off of me and said, don't forget, darling, this is a work of fiction. And I said, I know. But she said, no, this is a work of fiction. She took all of the pressure off of me to be her mother for her or mm. for anybody else. Now, you had been she'd, pri- wrote, she'd written, they'd written a play. You had been primarily in musicals prior to this. And here you have a straight play, basically. How did that come about? What, why, what did they see in you other than her feeling you were her mother uh, to put you in a, in, a, in a dramatic play? I have to be honest. I don't know. If if the great Hal Prince had not been in a room who I'd never worked with before, um, met and sort of idealized, as I still do, um, 
that, that, that another director might have had the vision that he had. I really don't because, I gotta be honest, being a little girl who did musical theater, there's a stigma placed on you that you, therefore, you know, are not a great actor. Um, consequently, which, ironically, I think it's, quite, it's harder to be in a musical than it is to be in a play. You have to justify why it is you sing. You don't just, I mean, we don't in real life, except for a couple of friends I have just break into song. But for the most part, you have to justify why it is that you sing. So um, he had no stigma about it. Uh, that, in conjunction with, I think, Carol and... They were generous. They were so generous. And obviously the two of them had some vision because you did win the Tony Award for that, that performance. <laughs> and ironically, not in a musical, in a play. I know. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? I had no idea. I had never in a million years thought. I've, I mean, really, people do say it, and I, I think most people really do mean it. But, you know, it really is. It's, it's a thrill to be honored. And I, my husband was also honored that same season for doing uh, Herbie and Gypsy with mm-hmm. Sam Mendes and the great Bernadette Peters. And so there we are sitting in that auditorium. And, and I remember looking around thinking, oh, my God, look at this, Vanessa, Vanessa Redgrave and um, Cheetah Rivera. And, oh, my God, it was like Antonio Banderas and Billy Joel and Brian Dennehy and my friend Dennis O'Hare, the great. And I thought, oh, how did I get in this room was all I thought. How did I get here? So was it Hollywood Arms that opened up opportunities for you as a dramatic actress? Because there are other plays. The Paris Letter, um, uh, Losing Louis last season, Dark at the Top of the Stairs for the Transport Group. Mm-hmm. Are those all things that came in the wake of Hollywood Arms? I think so. Not that I might not have had those opportunities otherwise, but um, I think consequently they they opened doors that might not have been as easy to open. I was able to get in certain rooms I might not have been able to get into consequently. Mm. I know, lucky me. Well, as we're now circling around, we'd be remiss before we wrap up if we didn't ask you to talk a little bit about Susicle. Mm-hmm. which was a fantastical and, yeah. at least in press reports, somewhat challenging experience um can you can you talk about you know the the out of town susicle and the susicle that that came to broadway it's so interesting to hear you know people's perception of it being difficult and because my memory and my experience of it was just pure joy uh, once again, there you are with Steve Flaherty and Lynn Ahrens, who, and the great Frank Galati, who uh, directed it, and um, and then Rob Marshall and Kathleen Marshall, and I mean, it was. I I really, I don't know why it was plagued the way it was. I think people had people, and I say people, <laughs> by. Um, some pr- some pr- the of the producing entities that became involved in that. I think it became somewhat of a struggle as to who um, they thought the audience was for the show. Was it a kid's show or was it an adult show? When in actuality, I think we all know, you just have to tell a good story. You don't have to gear it for kids and you don't have to just gear it for adults. Kids will get it. You know, even if it's sophisticated, if you tell a good story, we don't need to worry about that. And I think, in essence, initially, we started out like that. It was simple and beautiful. And um, somewhere along the lines, uh, it, it got more 
complex and, and complicated, underneath it all was still this beautiful, heartwarming, wonderful story with a brilliant score, and it was hard. We took a beating, and I, I remember thinking, oh, why? Why? This is just delightful. And you put that CD on, listen to that. You can't, it's start to finish. It's exquisite. And there was just, you know, a production of Theater Works downtown, so people have had the experience of re, uh, in, in, re-experiencing it in, in sort of, with sort of new eyes, and, and, and I think it's being seen as, uh, for what we all knew it, it is and was. So you think it's a different perception now in hindsight than there was at the time? I guess so, and maybe because of expectations. I don't really know why. There really, there really, I, I really think is no real reason why things like that just happen. You know, it gets a vibe, it gets word of mouth. It was also for me, in my experience, the first show I'd ever been a part of where the internet placed such uh, a critical part in the in the show when we were out of town. It was the first show I'd ever been in where anonymous viewers got online out of town and and started to speak about it. Interesting. Of all the guests we've had on this program, I think you were the first to ever mention the Internet and the impact that it's had. And I guess it has had impact nowadays. We would be, iro- uh, um, uh, we would be um, um, not smart to we- underestimate the value of it. And I think any, any producer now, any ad uh, ad firm will will tell you how critical uh, the internet now p- the a big part that it plays in part of the changing face of theater. It does, it does. And I, you know, and, and on that note, this sounds bad, but I just want to say that to those of you who go to see it out of town, you know, a new work is a new work, and a new work takes a bit of nurturing, and it takes a bit of love, and it takes support. And let me tell you, it's an Olympic event to create something new. So if you have the opportunity to not lambast something before it's had a chance to get worked on, you know, take the high road there. Take the high road and, and, and give it um, critical support. You can say what you need to say and be positive, but, you know, bashing it does not help anybody. Least of all, anybody who then people don't get the opportunity to see it. Well, they say that first impressions and last words spoken are things that people remember. So I think that's a good way to end the program with that final thought from you, Michelle Falk. <laughs> and Michelle, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Thank Center. Thank you. Thank you both. Thanks, Michelle. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.